Things are not always uh, what they seem, are they? I'm sure most of you have, have had some experience in life when you felt duped, when you felt like uh, you thought something was, was one way and it turned out to be another way. Uh, you've probably, most of you probably purchased something or um, something online based upon a picture, and when you received the item, it was nothing like the, like the image. My, my uh, illustration there is uh, what Doug Elder calls my Virginia Tech shoes. If you've, uh, you've never seen them, I have a pair of, of brown Oxfords that, that in the picture, they, they looked beautiful, this, this brown leather, and uh, then there was a, a lighter shade on the bottom. When I got them, the lighter shade was hokey orange. I mean, it's like, but I already purchased it, so I can't send them back. So I have to, I have to wear these shoes, and they're a constant reminder that things are not always like they, like they seem. Maybe you've bitten into a, a piece of fruit that looks really, really yummy on the outside, and it's, uh, mushy and brown on the inside. There's there are hollow Easter bunnies. There are potato chip bags full of more air than than chips. They probably ought to call those politician bags, by the way. Full of more air than substance. The cover of the book doesn't always guarantee the contents are a bestseller. And if you can relate to any of those illustrations, you've already begun to grasp the situation within the church in Sardis. The fifth church that Jesus writes to in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, that's where we're going to be this morning, Revelation chapter 3, it's in verse, verse 1. Jesus writes, in, writes to Sardis. It was, a, it was a church that outwardly was providing all of the indications that it was a normal functioning church. But inwardly, we, we learn from the message that Jesus gives to His church, inwardly it was spiritually comatose. It was just like what Jesus said about the Pharisees and the scribes. They In Matthew 23, 27, "...woe unto you, scribes and, and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs." which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. They would come and they would paint the outside of the sepulchers in order for them to to shine white. White, even in our text today, is a symbol of righteousness. And so here was this, this, these beautiful white sepulchers or tombs full of, of bones. The problem was for Sardis was that they didn't know it. They didn't know what Jesus communicates to them today. You may think that the church was very similar to Tracy's aunt who went to be with the Lord not long ago. She had a few aches and pains, but she had no idea that she had terminal cancer. And just a few weeks after the diagnosis, she was with the Lord. She walked around with no outward signs, but inwardly her body was ridden with, with cancer cells. The church in Sardis outwardly had a good reputation. It, was, it looked healthy, looked active, looked vibrant, but spiritually, in the places that it mattered, it had compromised and it was on its, its deathbed. None of the works of Sardis reached far enough to be commended by God. And that's pretty tough. 
I mean, God is very, very gracious and kind. How many times have you feel like the Lord has patted you on the back for something and you think, man, I don't deserve praise for that. I mean, we know what we provide is very weak, and yet none of the works of Sardis uh, were, were able to be commended by God. But as bad as the church was, a church that's called dead, a church that has zero works commended by God, as bad as it was... Jesus said there is still hope if the people would listen to the words of Christ. Always remember, if you don't hear anything else from this message today, always remember you're never too far gone for Jesus to call you back until the judgment actually comes. And as we're sitting here this morning, the judgment has not come. It's coming, but it hasn't come yet. And so there is hope for you, just like there was hope for me. By the work of the Spirit... Sardis is on the brink of death, and they can only be revived if the Spirit takes over. The Lord offers them and any of us the promise of revival if we will listen. By the work of the Spirit, Jesus has the power to bring physical dead to life. He has the power to bring eternal life to your spiritually dead heart, and He has the power to give a church new life. Again, and that's what we're going to see in Sardis. Do you need revival? Are you sitting there thinking, man, that sounds like something that I need? You, you need to be raised from the sick bed of apathy? You need to be turned in another direction, going through the motions, having low aspirations? Listen to the message today. Don't throw in the towel. The Lord has, has great news. He can turn it around if you listen to His counsel today. Let's read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 of Revelation. It says, And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and you have a name, a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die or about to die. For I have not found your works complete or perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I come upon you. Yet there are still a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So very typical of the messages of the letters, Number five, yet this one doesn't have any, any praise. It has condemnation. But it follows the same pattern. Jesus describes himself in a specific way as he introduces. He then gives the condition of the church, beginning with that familiar, I know. And then he, he gives them instruction and warning. And then he makes promises to those who are overcomers. You can see here in the map, Sardis is is located here. We've already been through Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and we're coming back down the other side. We only have two churches 
left. There are some beautiful ruins left in, left in Sardis. You can see this really large mountain in the background, and you'll, you'll see that um, part of the city was there at, at one point. This is part of the ruins. It was a gymnasium in, in Sardis. And this is a rendering of what the city would have looked like, a very vibrant city, several hundred thousand people living there. And in the midst of that city, there is a church that has a reputation, has a reputation in the community and the world around it in Sardis as being alive, but God says inside what He sees, it's actually on its deathbed. Here is the outline of just these six verses. And I titled this, I think the theme is Steps for Revival from, from the Spiritual Deathbed. There are six verses and laid out just like I gave you. In verse 1, you have the introduction of Christ. Verses 2 and 3, you have the indictment and warning of the church. And then in verses 4 and 6, you have the instruction and promise to the believers that that are there. And just like in every letter, the Lord describes Himself in a way that highlights the need of the church. And they need to look no further than, than Christ for, for the answer. So let's look in verse 1 at how Jesus introduces Himself. To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things says He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now remember, any time that he gives an introduction, he's always reaching back into the Old Testament, which is established in the vision in the first chapter, and he's also meeting the need. He's explaining how his attributes, something about himself, will meet the need of the, of the church. And so he says in this, this introduction that he is the possessor of the Spirit and he is the proprietor of the churches. That's the summary of these two, these two titles. The seven spirits, he's the possessor of the Holy Spirit, and he is the proprietor of the churches. He holds the, the seven stars, which is the, the leadership of the churches. And he begins with reminding them about these, these seven spirits of God. He begins reminding them where spiritual power comes from. The seven spirits of God, as we learned whenever we were going through the, the, the vision in, in chapter, chapter 1, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit who empowers the churches. And if you want the details of, of how that's what it means, you can go back and listen to that, le- uh, that lesson, that, that message. Any church that hopes to accomplish anything for Christ will be a body of believers yielded to and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And remember, this is a dead church. This is a church that needs revived. And so Jesus begins with saying, He is the one who possesses the power to revive the church, and that power comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus, during His earthly ministry, told His disciples something very perplexing. Now, if you can imagine... If you're sitting in the upper room discourse and you're somewhere around John 16, John chapter 16, and Jesus is preparing His disciples for the cross. And they're explaining, He's explaining to His disciples that He's going to go away. He's going to leave. He knows that He's going to be crucified. He's going to lay His life down. And He also knows He's going to rise from the dead. And when He rises from the dead, He's going to ascend into heaven. But what does He promise them once He ascends into heaven? Or who does He promise them? 
It's the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God. Jesus actually told the disciples that it was good that He goes away. Because when He goes away, He will send specific empowerment through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit was always active. He was active. It's the third person of the Trinity. He didn't just go poof whenever Jesus rose from the dead. He's, he's part of the Godhead. He was active prior to the day of Pentecost. But at Pentecost, there was a specific empowering for the church, for the church age, for the gospel ministry. And Jesus is telling His disciples in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go. It's a good thing that I go away. For if I go away, the Helper, if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. He goes on to say, Then He, the Spirit of truth, when He comes, He'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't exalt Himself. He exalts Jesus Christ. It's one of the ways that you can see the false ministries that are out there that focus on sign gifts and the gifts of the Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And typically it's all about the, the health, wealth, gospel preacher that's standing up there. All the attention is drawn to them. This passage specifically tells us that if you're under the control of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is at work, He's going to exalt Christ, not yourself. He's going to bring self-control. He's not going to bring you out of control. And this church needs the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the present ministry of the Holy Spirit is to gather the church through the preaching of the gospel, to equip the church by the instruction of the Word, and empower the church through His indwelling ministry. If that's too much for you to write down, gather, equip, and empower. The Holy Spirit's role is to gather the church through the preaching of the gospel. The Holy Spirit's current ministry is equip the church. How does He equip the church? Through the instruction of the Word. And the Holy Spirit's current ministry or present ministry is to empower the church through His indwelling ministry. The Spirit gathers, equips, and empowers the church. That's why Jesus said it would be good for the Holy Spirit to come. That same passage in John 16 says that the Holy Spirit, he will, when He comes, He will convict or convince the world of sin, righteousness, and of, of judgment. That's part of that gathering ministry. We witness when we witness or share the gospel. I hope you do. It's your responsibility to do so. When we witness or share the gospel, we become a tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit. That's our duty. Our duty is to preach. Our duty is to teach. Our duty is to witness. And as we do, it is the Spirit's work to gather the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. God the Father, he's talking about God the Father has a field, and we're to pray to send laborers into the field. But it's Jesus' harvest. It's our job to open our mouths. It's his job to open the hearts. Was it Bill Bright that said, failure to witness is failure to witness? That's the failure. The Holy Spirit can use some pretty pitiful efforts, can't He? Boy, He used some pretty pitiful efforts in my life, but He does that. We preach, the Spirit convicts. I don't have any a power or ability to do anything in your heart this morning, 
But as I faithfully preach the Word of God, the Holy Spirit can take His sword and He can run you completely through. He can put His finger on something in your heart and in your life and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, even though it's words coming out of my mouth, the Spirit of God is speaking to you. Have you experienced that? I preach. Somebody else teaches and the Spirit convicts. We witness and the Spirit confirms. You can remember back whenever someone was witnessing to you, there was something confirming, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, God is God. Yes, what this man or this woman is telling me is true. We witness the Spirit confirms. We plead and the Spirit converts. And once the church is gathered, the Spirit equips the church by instruction of the Word. The Spirit's role is to equip the church. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to do work in the church age. Once the church is gathered, the Spirit equips. It's the Spirit of God, from the Spirit of God, that we receive our spiritual gifts, right? Every one of you has been gifted spiritually by God if you're born again. God Himself has given you a spiritual gift, and we're to speak the truth to one another in love. And that giftedness has been given to you for the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7. Now, there are a variety of gifts with the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects with the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Your spiritual gift has been given by the Holy Spirit for the common good. And that common good is the equipping of the body of Christ. You have been given a spiritual gift by the Holy Spirit to help the process of building up and equipping the body of Christ. That means that you, yes you, yes me, we are a chosen vessel to minister for God in some way. That means you are vital for God's work. Do you feel useful right now? If you don't, it's a lie from the pit of hell because the Bible says that God has given you a spiritual gift to be used and it is vital for the body of Christ. We don't have time, but you can go and read in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about how there's different parts of the body and every part is needed, right? You've read that passage before. God gave you a spiritual gift to be used. One of the primary weapons of the enemy is discouragement. And whenever you feel discouraged... I can promise you, you, you probably should, you probably, if you, you paid close enough attention, you could smell some sulfur around. The devil tells you you're not useful, nobody cares, it doesn't matter if you serve or witness. If, if those thoughts are going through your mind, I can tell you with all conviction, that is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. According to the authority of the Word of God, we gather as a church. We're gifted by the Spirit. And when that happens, an amazing ministry is taking place. You're sitting here. Some of you are paying attention. Some of you are sleeping. Some of you are playing on your phones. Some of you are being changed. But there's an amazing ministry that's, that's already gone on here this morning. It's going on right now to go on after we break up because the Bible says that you will provoke one another to love and good works. You'll speak the truth. To one another. An amazing ministry happens when the church gathers. That's why you should come to church. It's not just so you can check it off your list or because it's some, you know, independent Baptist mantra. You come because there's amazing ministry 
that happens. It can happen in your life. It happens in others' lives. As we gather, we push each other to greater love and more works by the ministry of the Word of God in us. We affect others. That's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 teaches us. We encourage one another toward godliness by our very presence. And it's not just us, it's Christ being formed in us. Paul said, there's no good thing that dwells in me. But as the Word of God gets in us, it changes us. And as it changes us, we change other people around us. The Word transforms us into the image of Christ. I mean, how awesome is that? As the Word of God gets in us, it changes us. And as it changes us, it changes other people around us. We love what He loves. We desire what He desires. We hate what He hates. And we do that together. And as we do that together, we're all, we're all changed. It gathers the church, equips the church, and then empowers through this indwelling ministry. The Spirit is called our helper, our paraclete. His ministry is to help the bride of Christ until the Lord returns and we'll be in the literal presence of Christ. Now think about it. I've been in some pretty rough places in my life. I've been to the Motor City Bowl in Detroit two times in my life. Marshall University played there. And both times I was warned to make sure I took the right exit because I didn't wasn't didn't if I got off the wrong exit I may not get back on in downtown Detroit. There is no way that I would let my wife drive through downtown Detroit. I would not leave her alone, unprotected. Do you think that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to leave his church unempowered and unprotected in the midst of the world, the flesh and the devil? No, he's not. Just like you wouldn't leave your loved one unprotected or unempowered, the Lord Jesus hasn't left his church alone or helpless. He empowered you as part of the church by His indwelling presence. The Spirit comforts us. The Spirit strengthens us. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit illuminates the Word. The Spirit applies the Word to our hearts. The Spirit prays even when we don't know what to pray. The Spirit of God is the power of Christ on earth and He resides in the heart of a believer. And that's where the power comes from. And Jesus right up front, is reminding the church, you're spiritually dead. It will take the Holy Spirit to revive you, but that Holy Spirit has, has the power. He's also the proprietor of the churches. He's the proprietor of the churches, the seven stars. He says the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars are the, are the pastors or the elders of the seven churches that Christ holds in His right hand. Now think about this in the context. The stars were held in His right hand, symbolizing that they're under His control, that they answer to Him. This church has a need, and Jesus is going to meet that need. He first tells them about the Spirit, and then He tells them about these seven stars. By the same Spirit of God, God calls elders to shepherd the flock. The Bible calls them overseers and elders and pastors. He uses that term interchangeably. They're the God-ordained leaders through whom Jesus gives leadership to His church. 
they have no authority outside of the Word. It's not just on their entrepreneurial ability, their opinions, or anything else. They speak the Word, but they lead the church. And Christ's leadership is mediated through the Word, through the leaders that He establishes. They're subject to Christ, they're called by God, they're gifted by the Spirit, and their, their authority is the Word. And Jesus is reminding the church at Sardis that the power of the Spirit is necessary for revival and He will lead them where they need to go through faithful pastors speaking the Word. I mean, think of it this way. He's reminding them who owns the church and also who leads. And one of the reasons Sardis was on his deathbed was that they'd gone their own way. They thought they knew best. It's a dangerous path to blindly follow anyone. It's a deadly path to follow ungodly leaders. It's a rebellious and foolish path to resist those God who's placed over you. Look at Hebrews 11, 13 through 70. Obey those who have rule over you and be submissive, for they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. Who are they going to give an account to? They're going to give an account unto God. Let them do so with joy, not with grief. That doesn't mean that you just want a happy pastor. That means that you make happy pastors. And when they are, that's profitable for you. It's unprofitable for you if you're hard to lead. Being difficult hurts you. That's what Hebrews says. And I'm thankful that many of you are not difficult to lead. Let's look at number two. The indictment and warning to the church. These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God in the seven churches, I know your works, and you have a name, but you're alive, and you're, you're, you have a name that you're alive, but you are, you're dead. He says you're spiritual complacent has led you into a spiritual coma, and he calls them to a spiritual revival. That's how I would summarize verses 2 through 3. He says... Your spiritual complacency has caused the beginning of your problem. He says, I know your works. And he later says that they're incomplete in the sight of God. Nothing they were doing was recognized by God. Their motives and actions came up short. The works he describes. I know your works. And then he begins to describe them in, in, verse, in verse 1. You have a name that you're alive. You have a reputation of being alive. The irony of Sardis is that, that they have an outward appearance, but an inward emptiness. They have activity, but no spirituality. They're focused on some things, but they miss the main thing. Sardis was truly like that chocolate Easter bunny. Candy on the outside, nothing in the middle. And it can happen. It can happen to, to any church. Barclay says a church is in danger of becoming like Sardis when it begins to worship its own past, when it's more concerned with forms than with life, when it loves systems more than it loves Jesus Christ. Guard what is important, brothers and sisters, but hold loosely to the things that change with time. No matter what your attendance is, no matter how impressive the building, no matter what the status in the community, a church that denies or adds to the life-giving source of the Bible will end up dead. 
And that spiritual complacency led them to a, to a spiritual coma. That's what he says here. I love going to, um, to Cabela's or Bass Pro or one of, those, one of those really large hunting shops. But one of the reasons I like going is, uh, besides looking at all the cool new hunting stuff, is the taxidermy exhibits. Have you ever been into some of these really large stores? Um, when I preached for Rick Holland last year in Kansas City, they have a massive Cabela's there. And they have this big mule deer exhibit. It has the has the world record mule deer there? Well, of course I have to go. I have to go look at it. All of these beautiful creatures. I mean, it's it's a massive room, bigger than this room in this church, just filled with with all these huge mule deer, all positioned perfectly in a mock habitat. I mean, they almost looked alive, but they weren't. And the only thing better than going to Cabela's and seeing a Stuffed mule deer is to see a live mule deer in a real habitat. And that's exactly one of the ways that Jesus describes Sardis. They appeared normal. They were in their habitat. But there was no life. And so he calls them to spiritual revival. Look at what he says here. I know your works. He later says none of them reach God. You have a reputation, but you're dead. Wake up. Be watchful. Verse 2. The concept of falling asleep or failing to watch. When Jesus said, be watchful, and they would have read those words. And whenever you find in verse 3, therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. That would have... That would have reverberated through the church in Sardis. They would have known exactly what Jesus meant because of some historical things that happened in, in Sardis. Sardis was located beside the, the Hermes River, and it was about 1,500 feet above the valley floor. And, and, and the, the city, one side of the city, had a 1,500-foot sheer rock wall. It had a reputation for being impregnable. No one could ever sack the city of Sardis because they could always see the enemy coming with plenty of plenty of time. They would be able to shut the gates. They would be able to prepare. And there's no way that the enemy could scale up that 1,500-foot cliff on the backside. They even became known as you would want a city that would be protected like Sardis. And because that it was seemingly invincible in location, the that led the watchmen of the city to, to become careless. And on two different occasions, Sardis was sacked. One by one, the Persian enemy climbed up the steep walls and opened the front door of the invading army. There was no one manning that part of the wall because they thought that there's no way that the enemy could get up it. So they climbed up and went right to the front door and let the enemy in. And so when Jesus says to them, cause them to revival, be watchful, they knew exactly what he was talking about. He says, you've got to see the enemy before it's too late. And it, it almost was. Their body was unresponsive. They, and yet, they could still hear the great physician's voice when He calls them to revival.
when God speaks, even the dead can hear. He called Lazarus out of the grave. Winds and the waves obey his voice. Smyrna, or Sardis, I should say, now must obey his voice. And he gives five commands to them. He says, be watchful. Show yourself to be watchful. Be vigilant. Strengthen what survives. It means to stand something on its feet. Make it strong. And then he says, remember, keep, and repent. Five commands. And he tells them why. Because their works were not sufficient. And if they don't change, he's going to turn from the great physician to become the great judge. He gives instruction and promise to the believers of Sardis. He says, remember, keep, and repent. Look at these three instructions beginning in verse 3. Therefore, remember how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Now, what's interesting about this verse is that there are three different tenses of verbs. The first verb, remember, is present tense. The second word there about um, about holding fast or keeping, keeping what you have received is, is in the perfect. And then the last word, heard, is, is in the past tense. He says, bear in mind, continually bring to your memory, presently bring to your memory, what should you bring to your memory? What you have received, which still has lasting power today, your faith in the gospel, which came to you whenever you heard it. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. And then, after they were to do that, they were to repent. They were to humbly turn to God and confess their sin with fear and trembling. Now, what does that say to us? You're to presently remember what you received that still has power for you today, and that which you received is what you heard, which was the gospel, and then you're to repent. What does that mean to, to us today? It means that if you are cold or dry or on the verge of slipping off into the grave, you don't need a new experience. You don't need a new message. You don't need a new plan. Everything you have ever needed is in the life-changing gospel that you've already heard. And what you need to go back is to that simple yet transforming faith and keep it and then repent. Look at the, how Jesus turns the, this sentence in, in verse 3. He says, For if you will not, or therefore if you will not, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come. It's the same language that Jesus uses to the world whenever He returns as the judge of the earth. Matthew 24, no man knows the day or the hour. It would be like a person sleeping in their, in their bed and the thief breaks in and sacks the house. 
It will be unexpected. It will be unwarned. Just like they were overtaken by sin when they weren't paying any attention, if they don't pay attention to Christ, He's not going to climb up the back. He's going to come in like a thief, and it's going to be unexpected and unwarned. And they will have no one to blame. They won't be able to blame the Lord. No sinner standing in judgment. No church refusing to repent will be able to profess ignorance. Because God's witness is everywhere. There's the witness of creation that renders all people without excuse, whether you've heard the gospel or not. They're the people of God that testify of His transforming work. I still run into people that, that haven't seen me since college. And when they ask me what I, what I do, and I tell them I'm a pastor, it's like the blood drains out and they almost pass out. The testimony of the transforming work of Christ. There's the Word of God written, preserved, and proclaimed for thousands of years. It's a witness. There won't be any excuse. Oh, I didn't know. You knew there's a God. You knew there's something bigger than you out there. And while some will face judgment, others will be faithful and will receive God's promise. Look at at how he turns in verse 4. Here's the promise. You have a few names, yet you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before the Father. Two sides of the same coin. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There are few who have not soiled their garments. While the rest of the church had, there's still hope for Sardis because there's still a few there that have not forsaken Christ. That's why judgment hasn't come yet. Is there a few? Do you remember the conversation that Abraham had with the Lord before he went into Sodom and Gomorrah? He got all the way down to ten righteous. If he could just find ten, God wouldn't destroy him. He couldn't even find ten. There are a few. There are not many. There are a few in Sardis that have not defiled their garments with the world. And to those who walk with Christ uncompromised in this world, He promises communion, commendation, citizenship, and confession. He promises communion. Look at what he says. They shall walk with me. That echoes the garden. Enoch, who walked with God. There'll be communion with God. Have you ever just had the world caving in on you, feel like everybody is against you, and you go into your prayer closet, whether that's walking alone in your subdivision, whether that's a literal closet and you have genuine communion with God, and all of the troubles of this world pass away, all of eternity will be communion with God for those who are faithful to Him. He promises those who remain undefiled communion. They'll walk with Me, He says. They'll also get a white robe. They'll be commended. Because they're worthy, he says. They shall walk with me in white garments of praise. If they're worthy, 
And then they will never be forsaken. Their names are secure. Their citizenship. I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Some people read that verse and go, oh, well, does that mean that your name can be blotted out of the book of life? What does it say? I will not blot his name out of the book of life. It doesn't say it can. And look at the, how he turns the flip side. And I will confess his name, or but I will confess his name before the Father and his angels. Christ will never forsake you. You are secure forever, and He will gladly associate with you. He'll confess that you're His people, that you're His own, and He'll do that before the Father, before His angels. You might be forsaken by the world, but you'll not be forsaken by Christ. People on earth might know your name. They might know what you've done. You might even get written up in the history books. But you better make sure that the one who knows your name is in eternity and who confesses your name in eternity to the Father as one of His own is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it doesn't profit you a single thing if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul. Don't you bow your heads. Think about that last statement. I will confess His name before my Father. It's a picture of Jesus pointing out people and saying, He's mine. Father, she's mine. Father, that that little one's mine. And they're mine because I've washed them clean. And so they wear a white garment because they've been washed with the blood of the Lamb. Have you been washed with the blood of the Lamb? Does Jesus know your name? Yes, He knows your name. Will He name you as one of His own? I don't know the answer to that. You do, though. And if you will remember the words you've heard, if you'll keep what you have received and Repent. You can be named by Christ in heaven that one day. Christian, you complacent? Feel like you're in a coma? You don't need anything new. You need to strip away, shake off the deadness, and go back to the simple gospel that Jesus loves you, that He died for you, that He washed you clean, and that you're standing before God is Him and Him alone.